I just wanted to say, you know, I don't know if it's just me or maybe you've been noticing the same thing, but it really seems that maturity is increasingly hard to come by in our society. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, whether it's the the foolish behavior that you see around you at work or at school or maybe even in your own household, your family members, Uh, maybe it's the crazy stories you hear about in the news or those videos you you scroll through YouTube or Instagram and watch. I mean, it just seems that people are acting more inappropriately and more impolitely and more immaturely than ever before. And we're not talking about having fun. We're talking about being stupid here. And, you know, then again, maybe it's always been this bad and we just didn't know about it. Who can really say? But the bottom line is people who demonstrate responsibility and sensibility seem to be in shorter supply. And don't think this is just a problem among the younger generations. I know where some of your minds are going. Uh, This is not just a a byproduct of the trend toward extended adolescence and delayed adulthood. It's not. It's bigger than that. Uh, This issue can be observed across the demographic landscape. You know, as the saying goes, age is no guarantee of maturity. Growing old is mandatory, but growing up is optional. Think about that. I, I was actually doing a little research about this very regrettable situation, and I was surprised to learn that there's a diagnosis for those who behave in predominantly childish ways. And it's called, listen to this, immature personality disorder or IPD. And it's listed in the World Health Organization's International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems, 10th revision. All right. Immaturity is now officially an ailment, an infirmity. Well, isn't that just special? Now, as unfortunate as the acceptance, and I would say even sometimes celebration of immaturity seems to be in our society, what's more to the point for us here today as followers of Jesus at Harvest Bible Chapel is the subject of spiritual maturity and immaturity. Simply put, hear me, God wants his kids to grow up. God wants his kids, his sons and his daughters to grow up. I mean, he, he receives us just as we are when we, when we come to him in repentance and faith. And he, he, he welcomes us as, as his sons and daughters. He loves us. But then he desires for us to mature in every way, like any good parent does. What good parent doesn't want their kids to grow up into maturity? And we, we see this theme all over the New Testament. Uh, just a couple of verses. Ephesians 4.15 says, grow up in every way into Christ. First Peter 2.2 2 says, grow up into salvation. Hebrews 6.1 says, let us go on to maturity. So this is God's objective for his children. And it's also the Apostle Paul's prayer for our church. If you're just joining us, we're in a series called From the Heart. And over the last number of weeks, we've been looking at, at four prayers that Paul shares in the letters that he wrote to various churches way back in the first century. And these prayers, they reveal his heart for people that are, that are very dear to him. These men and these women that he longs to see move forward in their relationship with God. 
And no surprise, these ancient prayers have tremendous application for us today because they perfectly express what's on our hearts as the leaders of this church as well. And by the way, all the messages are on our website. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Dwayne unpacked Paul's prayer for spiritual harmony. And last Sunday, Jordan Chorus addressed his prayer for spiritual strength. Next Sunday, Pastor Roger is going to address his prayer for spiritual wisdom. And this morning, it's my privilege to help us consider Paul's prayer for spiritual maturity. I think you figured out where we're going. And we find this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. So if you aren't already, aren't already there, please turn there in your Bible, your hard copy or your app, get it open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you're having trouble finding it in your Bible, uh, just keep on going. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you hit Timothy, turn back and it's right there. Just a short little letter, a couple pages long. And here's what Paul writes in this letter to a church in Thessalonica, beginning at chapter 3, verse 10. He says, We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's just pray for a moment and ask God to speak to us through this passage. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it. Thank you that you've given it to us, that it's your message to us. God, thank you that your desire is that we would go on to maturity, that we would grow up as your kids. And God, this is one tool that you have given us to help us in that process as we look into your word and see what it has to say. So God, I pray that you would impact us through your word as only you can. God, I pray that your spirit would have free reign in each heart and each life in this room. And God, that we would learn and then implement what it means to grow up into spiritual maturity. We pray that for your honor and glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we study this prayer of the Apostle Paul about spiritual maturity, I hope, I really hope that it'll reflect your prayerful desire for your own life, that that each person in this room would be able to say without any hesitation, without any pretense, God, I want to grow up. I want to grow in spiritual maturity. That's my desire. That's my heart. And and, and it may seem so obvious. It may may seem so basic. Like, like, of course, I'm here this morning. Of course, that's what I want for my life. Of course, I want to progress in my walk with Jesus. Of course, I I want to grow up. I mean, what else would I want to do? But I think the truth of the matter is that many of us, much of the time, we don't yearn for spiritual maturity enough to do what it takes. We don't don't yearn and long for it enough to, to fervently pray for it and to passionately pursue it. I mean, like, if it, if it somehow happens along the way, like, without me having to exert much of myself, great. I'm all for that. But you're calling me to really do something to make this happen? I'm not so excited about that. And so as we come to this passage, I, I hope we can just be honest about that internal struggle. And I, I hope we'll be calling on God to do his part while also committing to do ours. I mean, 
don't know if you know this, but like God isn't going to just wave a magic wand and make us more mature without our active participation. That's not how it works. But neither can we just like pull up our socks and make it, make it happen apart from his gracious intervention either. I mean, it's, it's what we call a divine human cooperative. God and us partnering together to achieve his good and perfect will in our lives. That's how it works. God doing his part, us doing our part, and doing that together. And so with that said, I, I want us to see in this prayer three characteristics of a relationship with God that's moving toward greater maturity. Three characteristics. And th- these are qualities that, that should be increasingly true of us if we're on the path towards spiritual maturity. These are things we should be seeing growth in. But they're also things that we should be asking God to cultivate more and more. So we see them happening, but God, we're saying, I want more of that. I want you to do that more in my life. All right. And so each of these characteristics is phrased as a prayer to the Lord. And I hope it's your prayer. It's your heartfelt expression, your heartfelt longing to God today. I hope and pray it is. Here's the first one. God, help me lean into community more. Help me lean into community more. Notice again, verses 10 and 11. Paul writes, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Perhaps a a little background info would be helpful before we kind of dive any further. Paul writes this letter around 51 AD to a, a community of people who have been Christ followers for probably no more than a few months. We can learn from Acts 17, and you can read that later. In Acts 17, we learn that during Paul's stay in the city of Thessalonica, he preaches in the synagogue on three successive Sabbath days. And he evidently remains in the city for some time thereafter, and he continues to minister among the Jews in the synagogue, but he also works among the Gentiles. And through his ministry, He wins a lot of converts. He's very successful. And many men and women from both Gentile and Jew come to Jesus Christ. But he does encounter opposition. The the city leaders aren't happy with what's going on here. And so he encounters opposition. Because of this, Paul exits the city for fear that this new fledgling church will face persecution. He doesn't want them to face that because of him. And he regrets leaving the, the Christians before they're well-established in the faith. But he, he anticipates that he'll visit them again very soon. But unfortunately, circumstances prevent him from returning. And so he sends his protege, Timothy, to go and, and check on them and to pour his life into them just like he wanted to do. And, and then to report back and, and tell Paul how things are going. And... Um, Timothy eventually reunites with Paul and he shares the good news that the Thessalonians are standing firm. They're they're growing. And so Paul sends this letter to this group of people he loves and he encourages them, press on. I, I want you to remain faithful. I want you to keep on the path that you're on. And as we see in these two verses, Paul is still holding out hope of once again being with the Thessalonians in person. He says that he prays most earnestly night and day toward that end. He, he asks both God the Father and the Lord Jesus to direct his way and to bring them together. Do you see that? And actually, if you flip up to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he prays 
much the same. He communicates the same thing. I want to be with you. I want to come and see you again. Why is this so important to Paul? I mean, why does he feel such a compulsion? He's already sent Timothy. Why does he feel such a compulsion to be in physical proximity to the Thessalonians? I think he gives us the answer right at the end of verse 10. He says, because he wants to supply what is lacking in their faith. And similarly, in just the previous paragraph, just a couple of lines above in in chapter 3, verse 2, he talks about wanting to establish and exhort them in their faith. You see, Paul recognizes that these Christ followers need ongoing life-on-life support if they're to grow in spiritual maturity. They can't just be left to fend for themselves and, and see how they can do, even with this letter. Even with this letter that we now consider scripture in their hands, it wasn't enough. He understands that that they require someone to come alongside them and to nurture them in their faith. And listen, so do we. So do we. And this is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 writes these words. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And what was true then is true now. Christianity has never been a solo sport. It's never been a solo sport. It's a team effort all the way. We need each other if we're going to cross the finish line of our faith. We need one another. We we need to lean into biblical community to keep growing spiritually. Uh, We need meaningful relationships with fellow believers so that the, the one another's that we see in God's word, they can be lived out in mutual pursuit of maturity. You see, here's the thing. We prize independence, but God prizes interdependence. And those of us who've been around the church, and I know many of us have been around the church for some time, whether this church or others, and we've heard all this before. We, we know that we, we need to make church a priority and Sundays and that we need to find a, a small band of Christian brothers and sisters to come alongside and journey with us and us with them. And yet so often we, we don't lean into community like we should. In fact, just this week, Lifeway Research released some brand new survey results about people's views on discipleship. And one stat just jumped off the page here. And this was what the stat said, that two thirds of regular churchgoers, two thirds of people like us agreed with a statement. I can walk with God without other believers. I I don't need anybody else for me to pursue my walk with God. That's what they said. Two thirds. Why is that? Like, like what's up with the rugged individualism spiritually? What, like why, why such a reticence to lean into community more? And I was thinking about that this week and I, I jotted down five obstacles that keep us from community. And um, this isn't everything that could be said, but these were five that came to me and they're in no particular order, but maybe you want to jot them down and maybe one of these is what's standing in your way as you're thinking about leaning into community more. Here's the first one, apathy. Apathy. We just don't care enough. 
It's not a lack of knowing what to do. It's a lack of desiring to actually do it. I mean, community isn't important enough to move the needle. We're indifferent and it leads to inaction. This is basically Newton's first law of motion applied to discipleship. An object at rest tends to stay at rest. Apathy. I don't care enough. Or maybe it's pride. Maybe pride's the obstacle. Like we think we're special. We, we feel self-sufficient. We can make it on our own. We don't need anybody to be part of our spiritual growth. I mean, it's just me, God, and the Bible. Just me, God, and my worship tunes. That's enough. I'll be fine. Listen, friends. We need to stop being so arrogant. Scripture tells us that God hates pride and that pride goes before destruction. Pride's another obstacle that keeps us from community. Maybe this is yours, busyness. Busyness. I mean, we we tell ourselves, I'll lean into community. I, I would do it if life just weren't so busy and I'll be sure to do it when life slows down. Hey, when, when I just get past, you know, October or 2020 is going to be a much better year. I will be sure to implement it then. The problem is things never slow down. You found that? And the truth is we all make time for what really matters to us. I mean, I, I can't read my Bible for a few minutes each day, but I can watch TV. I can scroll through Instagram for hours on end. I, I can't join a small group, but I can go to the gym multiple times a week. I'm too busy, is what we say to ourselves to get ourselves off the hook. Maybe your thing is fear. And the thought of leaning into community is scary because you've never done something like this before. You've, you're not a people person. You're more of an introvert. And the, the thought of going deep with a few people when you're, you're private and talking about spiritual growth, things that like heart stuff, like that's just, whoa, causes anxiety and fear and worry. Maybe it's hurt. Maybe you, you tried this before. You you engaged in biblical community in the past and you feel like you got burned. Somebody said something, somebody did something and it caused you deep pain and now you are steering clear to protect yourself. You've been hurt before and it's not gonna happen again. Whatever the obstacle may be, whatever's standing in the way of you and community, You need to push past it because we truly need each other. I mean, like diet programs, exercise programs, they figured this out. They realized that the the rate of success increases with a supportive community around people, right? Same is true in our pursuit of spiritual maturity. And as we we head into the fall here in just a few weeks, you're going to be hearing about lots of opportunities to, to get involved in small groups and study groups and hope groups and other things. And same applies really in our student ministry and in our kids ministry. Places where others can help supply what is lacking in your faith and where you can do the same for them. Friends, ask God 
to help you lean into community more. Because that is a path to spiritual maturity. All right, we're, we're praying this, we're saying this, we're declaring, God, I want to grow in spiritual maturity. Here's a second characteristic, a second sign that we're moving in the right direction. Again, it should be increasingly true and increasingly desired, all right? Something we see and something we want more. This should be our prayer. God, help me love others more. God, help me love others more. Look at verse 12. Paul says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. The apostle reminds the Thessalonians of his deep love for them. Notice that last phrase, as we do for you. He says, I love you. I love you. And he prays that God would cause their love to increase and abound. He, He wants their love to just overflow in every direction. The idea behind those words, increase and abound, is of something that's just like it's spreading out rapidly and it is dispersing widely. It's like those videos of, a, of floodwaters. They just, there's nothing that can hold them back. It's just going to come across the landscape. Can't be contained, can't be stopped. And Paul wants the same to be true of their love and our love. It's interesting as well in this verse, 312, that Paul prays that God would grow the Thessalonians' love. Do you see that? See his word choice? May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. He he prays as if it's all up to God to make it happen. But then just one chapter later in in, in 4, verses 9 and 10, he exhorts the believers to take action. He, He tells them, I want you to love one another. I want you to do this more and more as if it's all up to them to make it happen. So which is it? Well, it's both. So that, remember that divine human cooperative we talked about earlier? It's the same thing here. It's God and us partnering in the process of growth, prayerfully depending on him to do his part and purposely doing our part. Both are important, God and us working together. Another thing that's interesting in this verse is that he talks about who the recipients or the beneficiaries of this love are supposed to be. And you know, he talks first about love for one another. That's, that's talking about love for the brothers and sisters, the people that are in the family of God, our, our fellow Christ followers. And love for one another, love within the family of God, that is an essential attribute of every true Christian. Essential attribute. John Chapter 13, 35, Jesus says this. I think we actually referenced this last Sunday as well. But Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How's the world going to know that you're my disciples? If you have love one for another. You see, love here, this defines us as true Christians. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He, He goes on and he calls us to have love for all. Not just love for one another, but love for all. Love for the least and love for the last and the lost. Love for, for those who are hard to love. Those, love for those who don't want to be loved. Love for those who make your life miserable. Love for those who, who come against you. Matthew 5 
Jesus asks, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Like, like what's the big deal? That's easy. I say to you, love your enemies. Don't just love where it's safe in the family of God. Love all, love for one another, love for all. I mean, Paul is talking about unbounded love here, friends. And how we relate to those outside the community of faith is no less important than how we relate to those on the inside. Our love should have no restrictions, no caveats, no out clauses, no expiry dates, no limits. Wow. Think about love like that. Love for one another and for all. So what does an increasing and abounding love look like? Well, how do we know if we're actually making progress? Well, we could say a lot of things, but I want to just share with you three truths about biblical love. And this is a bit of a grid to help us evaluate how we're doing, and I hope it would motivate us toward greater Christ-likeness. Three truths about biblical love. First truth is this. Love is action more than emotion. Action more than emotion. It's more about doing than it is about feeling. And we've talked about this many times, but so often we hear the word love and we think automatically without, without even you know, trying, but it just comes to our mind. We think about emotions. We think about sentiments. And if we're talking about you know, marital love, we think about romance and passion. It's not wrong. It's not inappropriate. It's just insufficient. It comes up short because biblical love is far more than an emotion. It doesn't just state emotion because God actually calls us, regardless of how we feel at any given moment, to choose to be loving. So I don't care how you feel in the moment, love. Make a decision to love. Take an action that demonstrates love. Lean into love. Live in love. Put it into practice. And we see that here in our passage. And it's the gist in 1 Corinthians 13. And you know that passage so well, the the love chapter. And I want you to just see a couple of these verses. And Paul's talking about the action side of love. He, He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Do you notice that list? Those are, those are things to be done, not necessarily things to be felt. So love is action more than emotion. Second truth, love is you before me. Love is you before me. In other words, love is about pursuing the good of another before the good of oneself. And sometimes, let's just be honest here, even our demonstrations of love can come from mixed motives. And instead of it it being really, truly, honestly, all about the other person, we can fall prey to a what's in it for me mindset. Like, if I love them, then maybe this will come back my way, right? It becomes a tit-for-tat approach to love. Friends, that's not love according to God's standard. 
Ephesians 5, verse 2, and this is a passage I love. I preached on this a couple of months ago. But Paul there calls us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How exactly did Christ love us? I mean, this verse tells us that he sacrificed himself in an ultimate way by offering his life on a cross as the payment for our sins. We've, we've remembered that. We've celebrated that this morning through communion. Now, we may not be literally called to die in someone's place, but we are called to walk in love with that same spirit. Spirit of sacrifice. This, this is our example. Jesus is the pattern to outdo one another in service, to, to set aside my desires and my preferences, to, to look for ways to esteem those around me, even when it hurts, even when it costs, even when I don't feel like it. That high calling to put others ahead of ourselves is biblical love. That's it. It's you before me. Third truth, love is experienced before it's expressed. It's experienced before it's expressed. Love like we've been talking about is tough to put into practice, wouldn't you say? I mean, if, if getting love like this were easy, everyone would be getting it right, right? If it was easy to do this, we'd all be doing it right. We'd all be perfect. We'd all be models. And so this third idea gets to the heart of how we can actually love the way the Bible lays out for us to love. First John chapter four tells us that love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And that we love Because he first loved us. In other words, it's only when we've experienced the father's love for us as shown through his son. It's only when we we have that personal relationship with him. Only when that's been settled can we then express the same kind of love for others. It's experienced before it's expressed. And so I just got to pause here and ask, have you received and responded to the love of God in Christ? Are you forgiven? Are you free through the death and resurrection of Jesus? And if not, I would just invite you to open up your heart and receive him even now. Because that is the first and fundamental step in getting love right. You having problems with loving others? Maybe you haven't got that settled. And if your love isn't increasing and abounding like you know it should, ask God to overwhelm you once again with his love, the magnitude, the wonder, the glory, the awesomeness of his love, and then to help you express and overflow with love for others. Ask him to do that. God, show me your love again. I want to love others like you have loved me. Experience before it's expressed. And I think that's some of what Paul has in mind when he prays, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. He's talking about love that's action-oriented, love that's others-focused, love that reflects what's been received. Is that your prayer? Is that your genuine prayer? God, help me love others more. And if you're a child of God, then God's singular focus, his his laser-like focus for your life is to make you more like his son, Jesus. 
He, he wants to shape you and mold you into the image of his son. And Jesus is the greatest expression of love the world has ever known. So when you pray, God, would you grow my love? Would you help me to love others more? Do you not think that's a prayer he will answer? That's in line with his will to make you more like Jesus. I know he will answer that prayer. All right, so we're, we're making this prayerful assertion. God, I want to grow in spiritual maturity. God, I want to grow. And, and to that end, we've said, help me lean into community more. Help me love others more. And here's the last thought for us this morning and from Paul. Help me live in holiness more. God, help me live in holiness more. Notice verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. How would I summarize this verse? Well, the Apostle Paul points to the second coming of Christ as both the moment when the Thessalonians will be found fully blameless before God. That's the moment when they will be like Jesus. But he also points to that as a motivation for holy living now. Uh, Maybe say it this way. Paul calls us to live the present in light of the future. And later in in chapters 4 and 5 of this letter, he, um, he provides some additional details about the second coming of Christ. And what that will be like because he wants his friends and he wants us to be encouraged and he wants us to be prepared. And in another letter to another group of believers in, in Corinth, he, he wrote this about the second coming. He said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I, I don't know what this is all going to look like, what the judgment seat of Christ and what uh, you know, standing before him. I, I can't, I've, I've tried to envision. I don't know exactly how it's going to unfold, but I can tell you it's going to happen because God's word says it is. And that truth should cause us to pursue holiness now. now. Hear me. When the scriptures address the end times, it's not intended to drive us toward speculation, but rather Examination. Now, there's the question is, how am I living now in light of then? It's not to cause us to wonder about this and that and how's this all. It's to cause us to look inside and say, am I living now the way I should in light of that great and glorious day? That's what it's causing us to do. That's what it should cause us to do. You see, if our hearts are pure and clean and righteous and, and we're able to stand against temptation, that frees us from shame and embarrassment before the Lord. We should should look forward with great anticipation to that day, that day when we see him, that that day will be the the consummation of his process of sanctification in our lives. When that that process will be finished. 1 John chapter 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that great day, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, that's our glorious hope. We we sang about it this morning. That's the glorious hope. Jesus will come again. We will be like him. And it should drive us 
toward holiness now. But if our hearts are corrupted and, and dirty and unrighteousness and, and, and we're giving into temptation more often than we should, listen, we're not going to be eager to have our sin interrupted and exposed by Jesus' second coming. It's kind of like disobedient children who don't want mom and dad to walk in on what they're doing. It's kind of like the criminal who doesn't want the police to show up on the scene. I mean, none of us likes being caught doing what we know we shouldn't be doing. And in light of that, in light of the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, Paul prays that God would establish our hearts blameless in holiness. And he focuses on, our, on a heart because it's the, it's the seed of human emotions. It's, it's where our thoughts and our motives and our purposes are all wrapped up there in our heart. I mean, our heart is who we truly are. That's who we are, our heart. And that, that word blameless, it, it speaks of having done nothing deserving condemnation by God. Holiness, it means being set apart for God and conformed to his character. Now, clearly... None of us, this side of that day, can make the claim of being blameless in holiness. Anybody want to sign up and say that I'm blameless in holiness? I don't think so, right? We all fall short in so many ways. But I hope that's your pursuit. I hope that's your prayer. I hope that's your longing. I hope that's, that's the thing you want to be increasingly true of your life. And so, so we cry out to the Lord, God, help me live in holiness more. And holiness is a massive topic. We, we, we can't even begin to do justice with it in just these last remaining moments. But I, I wanted to just share five, five steps that I think can help us honor God and live in holiness more. Five things that can keep us moving in that direction. And the, the first word is this, it's to revere. We need to revere. The first key to pursuing holiness is rightly esteeming God as the Holy One. The Holy One of Israel who calls us to be holy as He is holy. And if we love Him, truly love Him and fear Him and worship Him and and hold Him in the highest regard, that's the first step because when the glory and the greatness and the goodness of God are big in our eyes, The appeal of sin shrinks. It shrivels. It it loses its grip in our lives. When we recognize God for who he is, who cares about all that other stuff? It starts with reverence. And then we need to restrict. I know that word seems negative, right? I mean, like, who likes to be constrained? I want to be free. I want to be able to do what I want to do. But this is about setting boundaries in our lives that protect us from potential sin. It's about making commitments to keep us on track. This is about actions we can and won't take. This is about places we can and won't go. This is about things we can and won't watch. Restrict. And then run, run. We, we, we need to set up the guardrails to keep us from sin. But listen, Satan doesn't care about your guardrails. Scripture says that he 
prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, to feast on, to tear apart. He doesn't care about those things you've put in your life. He wants to take you down. And the common instruction over and over in God's word is for us to flee, to, to, to hightail it, to get out of dodge. Don't stand there and give temptation a second thought or a second look. Run, run, flee. Then repent, repent. First John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, listen, this side of eternity will continue to fall into sin. And repentance is always the critical next step. It's agreeing with God about our sin. It's, it's acknowledging our fallenness and asking for his forgiveness. It's pledging to reverse course, go a 180. It's pledging to, God, I'm going to walk your way, not my way. And so whatever your specific shortcoming, and maybe God's brought something to mind now or even during communion earlier, can I just urge you, repent, turn. And then I love this last one, renew, renew. Ask God to revive you, to, to revitalize, to rejuvenate you from the inside out. I, I love Paul's, uh, sorry, David's prayer in Psalm 51 after he had sinned with Bathsheba. And you know this verse, he, he cries out, he says, God, create in me a clean heart. And renew a right spirit within me. Let him do his work of renewal and then go back to number one. And again, revere him as you should, as you ought, as he deserves. This is, this is a cycle that we need to continue in our lives. This is how we can live in holiness more. This is Paul's prayer for our church for spiritual maturity. And the question is, is this your prayer for your life? I hope so. We're going to um, spend a few moments talking to God about that quietly, personally. And in just a few moments, one of our elders, Rob Hodgson, is going to come and pray for us corporately. But I want you to look at the screen. And here's some things to just guide a few moments of prayer. Let this be your words to him. God, I want to grow in spiritual maturity. Would you help me lean into community more? What are those obstacles that are hindering me from the blessing of pursuing maturity with others? God, help me love others more. Who are you calling me to love in the same way and to the same extent that Christ has loved me? God, help me to live in holiness more. What area of sin is hindering my spiritual growth and what steps can I take to overcome it? Let's, let's just bow our heads and talk to God for the next couple of minutes, all right? Let's pursue spiritual maturity together in prayer.
Lord God, thank you for this day. We praise you for who you are. You are the only God. It's in you we have hope. It's in you we are saved. Lord, you loved us when we were sinners. Like Pastor Dan said, even though we have hurt you, we've done things we should not. We choose our own way. Uh, We thank you for the amazing gift that you died for us, that you loved us so much to take our place. Father, we pray for this church. We pray for your church, for as brothers and sisters in Christ, as people who seek to know more about you, to draw closer to you. Your word says that the wisdom is freely given to those who ask for it. And God, we do ask for that. We ask you to help us grow in our spiritual maturity as we seek to live according to your word. We recognize that you made us to be uh, living in community, that we are meant to build each other up. We're meant to encourage each other. Help us to invest in those around us, to reach out to those around us when we need help. Help us to grow in our faith in you and that 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 faith would change the way that we think and the way that we look to you and eventually, Lord, the way that we act every day. We pray that you would help us to love those around us the way you loved us first. That you would fill this place with truth and grace. That you would give us the wisdom to balance them in a way that honors you. Father, lastly, we just pray um, as we follow the mission you've given us to tell others about you, that you would protect us, that you would keep us on track, um, that we would be a light for you to all those around us who desperately need to know who you are and who need your salvation. We pray that we would see them with the same love and compassion that you saw us. Father, we thank you for this time together. We see you working in our lives and those around us. We recognize the blessings that you have given us. And so, God, we hold on to these promises and we claim them in the powerful name of Jesus.